Hi, and welcome to Authorise, the podcast where writers speak. My name is Kevin Hillier, another fascinating book and author for you to discover today. A trilogy of books about the royal family, uh, the latest of which we'll talk to Wendy Holden about. It's called The Princess. Now, you can talk to my friends at CSCG because they are the people who will help you sort out your financial situation. Now, whether your financial situation is good, bad or indifferent, uh, they can help you. They can help you achieve your financial goals and you'll have goals depending on wherever your current finances sit. Uh, Your finances might not be doing exactly what you want them to do. They can help you achieve what you're after. They have experts in all fields, whether it's superannuation, whether it's life insurance, whether it's business management, whether it's business planning. Uh, They have experts in all those fields and they can help you out. And of course, they obviously do taxation as well. So if you want to know what's going on with your money and know what is the best thing to do with it, give CSCG a call. Have a talk to them. Double nine seven four eight triple three, or jump on the website cscg.com.au. Let's meet Wendy Holden. A trilogy of books about the royal family. Uh, she'll go through those and uh, talk mostly about the one that is about probably one of the most famous women in the world, Lady Di. The Princess is the name of the book. Wendy Holden is the author. It's a very bold kind of trilogy of books to put together. Did you did you feel that when you undertook it? Well, I didn't really intend to write a trilogy. Um, I just be- I began with The Governess, which is the story of um, uh, Marion Crawford, the Queen's, um, the, the Scottish teacher, who was the Queen's confidant and friend and teacher when she was a little girl. And um, it was when I was writing that, because, because her story is a sort of, it's, it's, do you know anything about The Governess? Should I tell you about it? Yeah, please do. Well, Marion Crawford, uh, as I said, was the was the Queen's teacher um, for when she was a little girl, and she stayed with the royal family through the abdication and through the Second World War. But her story was completely she was completely cancelled by the royal family in the nineteen fifties because when she left royal service, she wrote a book about her years with with, with um, the Windsors, and it was an incredibly lovely book. Unlike most of the books that have subsequently turned up about them. And that she was completely cut off, even though she spent the best years of her life really helping and you know teaching and, and, and steering them through this very the little girls through this really difficult time through the abdication through the war, you know. So anyway, they cut her off and they never spoke to her again, and it broke her heart and it was incredibly sad. But as a result, she was pretty much eradicated from history, although sometimes you heard her name and people would go, oh, yes, Corfie, she was the one who wrote the book. Anyway, I found her autobiography, really old, really battered book, in a second-hand bookshop, and I looked I looked at it, looked through it, because I thought, oh, yeah, I, I know who this woman is. Anyway, on the very first page, there was a paragraph that said, I trained as a teacher in Edinburgh. I never intended to work with the royal family. I wanted to work with poor children in the slums. And I thought, that's amazing. How did a woman who kicked mm. off with those ambitions end up working for the most privileged family on the planet? So I thought, that's a story. And then I sort of started to read it and realised you know, what she'd gone through with them, these huge events that she'd witnessed as they did. And I thought, I've been thinking about writing a historical novel. And I've been thinking about the Windsors too as subjects because they'd always seemed to me, I mean, not just recently, but my whole life, they'd always seemed to me like people from a novel, you know, they're sort of these incredible characters, they're also different, they all do these dramatic things, it's also glamorous. So 
I thought, this is my way in. This is a really interesting story, and I want to fictionalise it. And one of the reasons it's so interesting and, and, and so appealing is that no one's ever written about her before. So that was The, the Governess, my first novel in this trilogy. And it was while I was writing that that a, a um, chapter, a, I wrote a chapter set at Balmoral, which involved Wallace Simpson, who just a, appeared um, at the Balmoral, um, at the behest of Edward VIII. Um, this is just um, before the abdication. And the story of her appearance there was quite controversial and, and, and she attracted a lot of bad press for going there. But when I sort of looked into that story, it struck me that there was something funny about that too. And I started to think, is everything that we've always been told about Wallace Simpson, you know, the most evil woman on the planet, awful yeah. scheming social climber, blah, blah, is that actually a bit of spin as well? What's the real story? And how did somebody who was you know, not well off, not very good looking, not at all well connected, foreign and divorced when she turned up in London, how did somebody like that capture the heart of Edward VIII? And why? You know, there's always a why. And so when I started to look into her story, I realised there was an entire alternative narrative that I could fictionalise because I'm a writer, because I'm, I'm an author. Um, and that was the that was the Duchess. And then I thought, oh, well, look, I, I'd like to write a trilogy. And there's one more really obvious candidate of disruptive woman, of woman who came from <laughs> the outside into the family and changed it forever. And that's Diana, the biggest um, disruptor of all. So that's where the idea came from. But again, I didn't want to write the story about Diane that everybody knows or thinks they know. I wanted to write the story of, of how she got to be Princess of Wales because I'm interested in these journeys, you know, how people get to these situations because it's always a series of steps. It's always really interesting and it's really revelatory about them, about the institution they're entering and about the times. And so, and that was certainly the case with Diana. So that's where those I, that, that trilogy came from. But as I say, it wasn't meant to be a trilogy. When I first kicked off, I wasn't sure what I was doing, really. But I just knew the Windsors were a great subject and, and Crawfrey was my way in. Did you approach the princess with any trepidation or because it is a work of your imagination, does that allow you the licence to be able to go in without worrying about the protocols and worrying about stepping on toes? Well, I knew that my I wanted to write a really positive story, uh, so that that wasn't at all difficult, and that was always my intention because I felt that she. It was pretty obvious after researching it for a while. I mean, I wasn't quite sure what the story was going to be, but I, I knew that I thought that she was a more interesting person than she's normally given credit for being, and probably much more intelligent. I, and as I as I looked into her story, I realised two things that were really going to drive my, my, my story. And one was the fact that she was, she was pretty much sort of selected and recruited by Buckingham Palace as a bride for Prince Charles. I mean, he was 30 in the late 70s, and they were really worried about the fact that he hadn't got married. They felt that um, it, it was, there was a risk that he might end up like his uncle, like Edward VIII, who was the last Prince of Wales, making a disastrous marriage late in life. The Queen Mother in particular was absolutely desperate to avoid that. So the search was on to find the right woman. Unfortunately, um, there weren't many of them around because Charles had already been through lots of women. He'd been out with practically every eligible woman in Europe. I mean, there, were, there weren't really many left. So, and, and, and she, the royal bride had to be a very particular type of girl. So she had to be young. So I use the word girl because she had to be young so she could have loads of children. 
She had to be Protestant because that's the law. She had to be very grand and she had to be without um, without any, you know, without spot. She had to be pure and innocent. She had to be a virgin, in other words, which shows you the kind of staggering double standards of the time. Because, of course, this child would be out with everybody. So, so it was a very particular type of girl. And there weren't many, as I say. In fact, Diana was just about the only, only candidate. And, and, and the Queen Mother spotted her at a wedding. And, and from then on, the, the sort of wheels started to move. But so it was all very pragmatic. It was all very practical. It was all very dynastic. It was quite cold. You know, there was no sort of emotion involved. But Diana came from the most, I mean, the most, the absolute opposite direction. You know, she was absolutely immersed in romantic novels. She had an, a completely inflated idea of love and romance. You know, she had the sort of, she thought Prince Charles was going to be the epitome of a romantic hero. He was going to sweep her away from all her difficulties and her sort of sad upbringing with her parents' divorce and, and sort of general neglect of her childhood. And he was just going to, you know, they were going to be happy forever. They were going to have lots of children. They'd have a huge family. It was going to be wonderful. It's going to be everything that her life hadn't been up to that point. And she really, really thought that that's what was going to happen. And that that's the tragedy of it. You know, I don't think the royal family realised that that's how she saw them. And I don't think she realised how the royal family saw her. So I think it's mutual and misunderstanding on an epic level. It's almost so like a Dis- almost like a Disney film meets Alfred Hitchcock, isn't it? Totally. Exactly. It was just, you know, exactly. It was sort of gothic and, and sort of <laughs> Cinderella at the same time. Exactly. It was but it was a real um combination of, of unimaginable extremes. And of course the stakes were hugely high. So all this is going to be played out in the full glare of the the the, the, the sight of the world. So it was a really dramatic situation. And the other aspect of it, which I, which fed into what I was talking about earlier, my interest in journeys, was that the route to being Princess of Wales was a bit like a sort of horse race. You had lots of different hurdles that you had to jump over. And these women that Prince Charles had been out with in the past, some of them had fallen at different hurdles. There was a, so some, some would say they, would, um, they wouldn't like the press attention, so that, that would disqualify them. Others would make it as far as um, going up to Balmoral for, for the week but not liking the fishing or, or finding it really boring or, or what have you. Other people, you know, weren't so interested in, in you know, sailing or there was all, there was, and, or they were just disqualified because they attracted too much attention. So there were lots and lots of hurdles and dangers along this way, which Diana managed to get through. You know, she got to the finish line, which was the altar. And, uh, and that was that. But I was interested in the stages of it and, and trying to, imagine all the way um, what it was like for a teenage girl to have to go and stay on the Royal Yacht Britannia at, at Cowes during the regatta week, you know, surrounded by all these old people who were obsessed with sailing. And, you know, it's just kind of, it's, it's, it's quite funny. And, and there's such a mismatch all the way through. So, and I had various characters when I was writing The Princess that were going to help her and, and sort of help make this thing happen. A bit like in Cinderella, where you've got Buttons, say. Because <laughs> there was a real life Buttons, who was Prince Charles's valet, who I've made one of the characters in The Princess. Uh, and he was, this, he, he was this chap called Stephen Barry, um, who was Charles's right hand man, and he used to help run his love life essentially so when I discovered that he'd existed and read some of the things that he'd written he seemed to be a really brilliant way of bridging you know the Diana and the palace and sort of helping her negotiate 
this um, this tricky route, you know, to 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 what she wanted. So um, yeah, it's it's that that I mean that's that's where I, I, I was coming from. But I, I didn't find it difficult, and I didn't feel I needed to have permission because Diana is now. You know, it's 26 years since she died. Diana's now a, a historic figure. You know, it's a generation ago. She sits in a, a proper historical context, and you know, she's she's a she's part of history. So no, I mean, and she has lots of fans. I mean, oh, yeah. lots of fans throughout the world. So, and I knew that I was not writing anything negative. As I say, I I I got to admire her and like her more the more I wrote the book and realised that she was. She was compassionate. She was funny. She was clever. You know, she wasn't a stupid person. She was just a badly educated person, and that's not the same thing at all. Is is that you know, one she, of the things that you wanted to set straight? Is that that she was a, a smarter human being than than yeah, a lot of certainly. the certainly, yeah, certainly, absolutely. I mean, you know, we think of Diana just as we think of the nineteen eighties as being a fairly modern kind of time, but. As the what I've just said about the the fact that she had to be a virgin reveals, you know, the social norms were, were really different. I mean, not that that was normal because that was the aristocracy, I suppose. But you know, the idea that that was still a thing that you know you could be expected you had to be a virgin to marry the Prince of Wales is is kind of seems completely medieval. And of course, that has changed. But again, with the nineteen eighties. Princess Diana uh, went to school in the, in the 70s in various boarding schools in, in, in the south of England. And they were really run on lines that hadn't changed since the 1930s. You know, girls were not expected to need an education as such. You know, it was more important that they knew how to walk, that they knew how to get into cars, that they knew how to cook and run a household and, and find a rich man. That was the emphasis of the education. There was not no real academic emphasis at all. So lots of clever girls... Were, didn't get much of a look in when it came to, to to proper teaching, whereas their brothers would be sent to excellent schools, and they all all the all, all the academic attention went to them. So she came from that sort of background. So she wasn't stupid. She just was terribly badly educated by people who just failed to you know get her interested. But one thing that was really important came out of her school days, and I was fascinated to discover this was it was really revealing. She went to a a boarding school, um, a perfectly, a kind of under underachieving boarding school in Kent, where you know it's full of nice girls like her. But one thing they did that was really quite radical for the time, very progressive, was to send their sixth formers. That well, I don't know if they would be called sixth formers, but the kind of top uh, year of the school, the oldest year, to this local facility, which is a um, mental health facility with with lots of with people who had all kinds of different conditions, sort of mental health ones. And um, in those days, you know, obviously now it's different. Um, but in those days, you all got, they all got shoved into these kind of asylums that looked terrifying, and that looked, they, they were kind of Victorian places with, you know, they, they were very much on the Victorian hospital tradition. They were built to look like castles, and they were quite creepy, and, and huge doors and nails in them, and towers and turrets and what have you. And these people were in a place like this, which was near the school, and the girls were sent on a kind of outreach um expedition every couple of weeks to see these um these people and, in, and interact with them and i think the idea of the headmistress which was an admirable idea was to teach the girls that not everybody was like them that some people struggled that there were difficulties in society and, and here were some of them so they were a bit more aware when they left anyway these girls had no idea what was going on they were completely terrified of, of the asylum of the people but the only person who, from the very beginning and completely intuitively, knew exactly what to do was Diana. 
So she would, they would all turn up and they'd all huddle against the wall and as all these um, patients would appear in the main hall. And uh, Diana was the only one who would, uh, she'd come out of the crowd, she'd go towards them, she'd shake their hand, she'd talk to them, she'd move their wheelchairs about and dance with them, she'd crouch down uh, at their level. And she was completely empathetic, completely intuitive, completely compassionate and, and completely natural at such a young age. Wow. So all that stuff, which she later became famous for, was was there from the very beginning, and I thought that was amazing. You know, because it's it's not it's uh you know I I, I didn't know where we'd come from, but the fact that it was always there and it had revealed itself so early was was really interesting. Yeah. So that the school did that for her, if nothing else. Yeah, were you a fan before you started the process of researching uh, all these things about her that you found not, out, not and, really. a, and a bigger I'm, I'm, fan I'm, after? Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I wasn't a kind of fan as such. I mean, I, 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 I was interested in her. I mean, I'd grown up with her. You know, she got. She was only a few years older than me, and I could remember her wedding, and uh, of course, which was the kind of the most massive event in the in the history of, of, of Britain, pretty much, or at least up until that time. And uh, and everybody was fascinated with her. And as I started to move through my career, which is um, on magazines and newspapers before I started to write, I often find my past crossing hers. I was working in London, I was working on Gloucester magazines. She knew some of the same people. We actually went to some of the same parties. So I kind of saw her sometimes. And I kept, um, kept you know, and obviously everything she did was widely reported, so we, we were all aware of her. But I, I wasn't um, really focused. I mean, I was, you know, we were observing her on a, by, day by day and not really seeing her in context. But what I was interested in was, was when I started to write The Princess, was her background. And having realised how difficult it was and how toxic and painful her parents' divorce was, and how even though her upbringing was very privileged in some ways, in other ways it was entirely neglected and difficult, it made me much more sympathetic towards her. Because in, in later life, um, she didn't seem to be someone who particularly been through that. Although, of course... That probably was the reason why she was always a- able to connect with people, whoever they were, because people thought she'd been through um, pain like they had, and she understood them, and sh- and they understood her. And that was there was always that connection. Um, but I hadn't particularly sort of bought into that until I read exactly what she had gone through and how difficult it had been, and and how badly she was treated. You know, the, the royal family really did. Um, it was a completely cynical exercise. Uh, everybody involved in the royal wedding, apart from Diana, realised that it was transactional and she was the only one who thought it was love. And that's just mm-hmm. really sad. Yeah. And she was so young. I mean, the, the youth of it. And there was she was so, so young. She was just a kid. And there was another thing that, that I hadn't realised, and I don't think anybody had really put any thought into, was she got engaged in 1981 at the end of February so she was just 19 when she got married, engaged to Prince Charles. And then she moved, Then, so she got engaged at the end of February and got married at the end of July. So there were five months between the two events. And she moved into Buckingham Palace uh, at the end of February. So she spent five months in the palace at the age of 19. And nobody took any notice of her at all, apart from the footmen who felt sorry for her and used to go and get her McDonald's from Victoria Station. But... The point I'm making is that 
She was the focus of the world's attention. Everybody was obsessed with her. The more wedding was all anybody could talk about or think about. But right in the centre of it, in the palace itself, the royal family weren't really taking any notice of her. Chris Charles wasn't really much around very much. And she was all by herself, which is when she sort of developed you know, some of her problems, her eating disorders and, and, and self-doubts and, and all the rest of it. And that just seemed to me a really terrible situation for, for, for someone her age to be in, for someone any age to be in. But it's really strange. You know, so the more I looked at what had happened to her and what the lead up to the royal wedding actually was, I realised what a bizarre story it is. I mean, it's a funny story in lots of ways, but it's also, and a very glamorous story, but it's also really sad and strange. That, uh, that, so, yeah, so I did, I, I came out at the end of it feeling really critical of the royal family, but, uh, but, but more sympathetic to her. Yeah. Uh, is that is that what you want readers to take out of this? Uh, people who I think so. Who, yeah. yeah, I want them to. I want them to realise, you know, how what a complicated story it was, and I just want them to know what 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 happened. You know, just want to shed some light on a part of this very famous story that is isn't famous at all. So it's kind of you know just showing them something that they they probably wouldn't know about. She's the most famous woman in the world probably ever, but this is part of her life that's very. Um, little known and and it's fascinating because it made there's so much that happened there that made the woman she later became were you surprised at uh at the depth of the, the sort of the stuff we didn't know that went on yeah i mean i was quite surprised at how horrible um her parents divorce was i mean it was extremely toxic so i mean was that um, because it was made over by the by the you know the people around the the palace and the royal family who didn't want that to get out because it would sully the royal family in some way no, if all no, that stuff came out? No, no. I well, I mean, possibly. Possibly they were worried about that, but it had happened a very long time ago. It happened in the late 60s, so it happened, you know, ages ago. Yeah. And and both of the um, parents had been married, so it, I don't think they saw that particularly as a problem. But what was a problem was was what Diana had, had endured. I mean, the most awful aspect of it was that her mother, her, her, her own grandmother, Diana's grandmother, testified against Diana's mother, i.e. her daughter, in court during the divorce hearing to say that Diana's mother, who's called Frances, was a bad mother mm. and the children shouldn't stay with her. They shouldn't go, she shouldn't have custody of her, her children. The children should stay with their father, Viscount Althorpe, as he was at that point. So Diana's own grandmother testified against her own daughter with the result that Diana didn't go with her mother. She went to, she had to stay with her father. And the truth was, or the, or the, the or seemed to be, or it has been alleged and much, uh, much said that uh, the reason Diana's grandmother did that was because she wanted the children to stay with the title and didn't want, them to go off with her daughter, who had married a man in trade. He'd married as a wallpaper heir. They want so she she testified in that awful way, and uh, which must have been horrific. I mean, how horrible! So so that's um, that was that was the one difficult aspect of it. But of course, there, there was the also the fact that parents were were split. You know, so yeah. Diana saw her mother. Only every few weeks in London, there used to be scenes at the station when she got back on the train. Her mother, you know, making a scene and 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 you know not wanting him to go. I think it was really painful all round. So so um, certainly not. An, and they all lived happily ever after fairy tale, is it? 
No, not at all. But but actually, and ironically and rather admirably, because you see, Diana gets a lot of stick in, in all her bio, all her biographies are really contemptuous of the fact that she was obsessed with romantic novels. But um given the given her parent that her parents' divorce and what Diana had seen of relationships and seen of, you know, how love and marriage can end up, I thought it was quite sort of impressive that she had such faith in romance and she had this alternative reality in her head of how it should be and how it could be. And it always seemed to me that this sort of obsession with romantic novels was really significant. It was much more than something that was a kind of, you know, sort of slightly tragic interest. I thought it was fundamental. And the more I read about what happened to her, particularly her belief that Prince Charles was this, um, you know, the perfect romantic hero and the absolute epitome of, you know, masculine perfection in every way. And it was going to be, uh, you know, going to make her so happy. She's completely um, convinced of that. And there was, there, were all, there was all kinds of evidence to the contrary. You know, her friends tried to warn her, other people tried to warn her. Um, it's not as if uh, there weren't people saying, are you sure about this? You know, he's 12 years older than you, your interests couldn't be more different. And some people, of course, knew that he you know, the Camilla thing. But she was completely convinced in a kind of blinkered sort of way. And I felt the only thing that explained this was the romantic novel thing. You know, that, that, that had, she'd read so many of them, they had completely formed her worldview. And she'd been so lonely, you know, she just read all these books and that's how she saw the world and that's how it was going to be. And that's what saw her through all these um, hurdles where slightly more realistic girls had realised, oh, actually, this isn't for me. But she was, <laughs> this is romantic, you know. So so that was all quite surprising to me. And, yeah. Almost so, like a hope that she clung on to that one day that may happen. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, one of those. Completely. I, th- I think she was convinced that it would happen. Yeah. You know, she really believed that was um, what love, I mean, she was so young and she was so innocent. And, you know, she she that was what she wanted to believe. She she was someone of very strong belief, and that's what she believed. She was she had a great capacity for self-delusion, and, and uh, that's what saw her through to, to what she saw as a triumphant uh, culmination of everything she wanted. But by the time she got it, she actually realised it probably wasn't going to be what she was hoping. Do you get any reaction? I mean, there's a million people in uh, in Britain who have uh, their opinion on the, you know, their royal watches, almost professional royal watches. What have they What have they been saying to you about about? Actually, the, tri- the, the I've had absolutely one hundred percent positive. Uh, people people really like it. Oh, people are really interested in it. People are they can see uh, what I'm trying to do. That it's quite a serious attempt to. Uh, novelise, look at her background. Oh, completely. I've had no, I've had nothing but uh, but positive. Well, it's reviews. not. It's not the formula of uh, of the the stuff that we've been used to getting over the years. No, about not her. at all. Yeah. No, it's yeah. a completely original take yeah, on her. Absolutely. I, yeah, absolutely. No, it's, and it's really really interesting. It tells us so. No, it tells us a lot about her, obviously, but it tells us a lot about the time, about the British class system, about the royal family. Yeah. You know, some of this thing, and of course. The consequences of what happens, you know, the, the, the fact that the royal wedding of 1981 was this um, combination of completely disparate and extremes, we're still living with the consequences of that. It's still playing out. The story's still going on, you know, the yeah. William thing, the Harry thing, the Meghan thing. It's all, you know, it's all going on. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's it's a kind of the story story continues, but that's where it all began. 
Wendy, thank you so much for spending some time talking to me about the book. Congratulations on uh, this one and the, and the trilogy and, uh, and uh, look you. forward to uh, what you might be doing in the future. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to talk. Thank you. My thanks to Wendy for her time. I hope you enjoyed this edition of the Authorised Podcast with thanks to our good friends at CSCG. Give them a call. Sort your finances out. Make sure your money's doing what you want it to do. Double nine seven four eight triple three, And uh, you can jump on the website and see the people you'll be dealing with, cscg.com.au. Some terrific authors on the way, including Liz Hayes, William McGuinness and Lisa Miller in coming episodes of Authorised. And of course, there's plenty more in our back catalogue where you found this podcast, you'll find them. Until the next time, I'm Kevin Hillier. Read a book. It'll be fun. 